Hey, y'all. It's Elizabeth. And in honor of Juneteenth, we are re-airing an episode we recorded a few years ago. Juneteenth is an annual celebration on June 19th of the end of slavery in the United States after the Civil War. And it has been celebrated by African Americans since the late 1800s. We hope this episode helps you celebrate this special day. But also remember how our nation's history of slavery, racism, and systemic injustice still affects us today and how we as a church are called to respond. Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. This is Adam Griffin, and I'm here with my co-host, Adam Hawkins. Adam, how you doing today, buddy? Doing good. How are you doing? I'm really good, man. I'm excited about what we've got on the episode today. It might be a little heavier for some people. We're talking about institutional racism, systemic racism. We're going to have an interview with uh, some guys that work down at Bonton Farms, which is an inner city farm in Dallas. And then we'll also be talking to Dr. Charlie Dates from Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago. And I'm really excited about what uh, we have to gain from both of these conversations as we talk about systemic prejudice. All right, let me set up the conversation for just a second. The reason we're talking about this topic at this time is this around the time of Juneteenth, which is uh, June 19th. It's a holiday that goes back uh, really 100 years or so uh, celebrated publicly, but goes back to the conclusion of slavery. Juneteenth is that day every year where some states, and it's an official holiday in a lot of places, although many white people are, are not aware of it, it's the day that we commemorate and celebrate the day that many of the slaves found out about the Emancipation Proclamation. And for the ironic part of that, or the sad part, tragic part, is that almost a year went by, if not more, uh, where slaves continued to be in slavery, but were unaware of the announcement of their emancipation. And so Juneteenth is a celebration of them finally finding that out. It started here in Texas, and now it's growing to be a national holiday. But one of the things we talk about around the time of Juneteenth is again, is is how the legacy of racism, not only from slavery, but from Jim Crow laws, from uh, the civil rights era, from all sorts of different uh, historic systemic prejudices, both explicit and implicit, still affect us today. And so that's why we decided to do an episode discussing this. That's why we're going to go out to Bonton Farms, and we'll be able to hear a little bit of the history of that place and the reality of the place and why there is a farm in the middle of the city of Dallas. Yeah, I just missed our turn back there. Hopefully it'll give me a different one or I'll turn around. There you go. There we go. We're in the city, right right near downtown. So you would think, oh, this is a convenient place to live if you work downtown, but really the, the way the highways have been built up around it and the way the river was before they built the levee made this an incredibly inconvenient place to live. And that, uh, that the explicit racism in the past that led to this being a black neighborhood has ramifications, not only in this generation, but probably will for generations to come. So my name is Trog Trogden, and I'm the vice president of Bonton Farms. So this is our 1.2 acres. Right now, we're looking at our animal portion. So we're looking at our 18 goats, and all of them have names, Lucy and Mary and uh, Seven and Spot and all these uh, goats here. We've got guineas. You're seeing some cool guineas walk around. Uh, we've got 150 chickens on the left-hand side about four beehives. We've got a, one of the things that we've started are a bunch of small business entrepreneurial things. So we've helped a guy start a lawn care company. We've got a guy that graduated barber school. We've started a honey company. We started a car company, all these kind of things. Um, low barriers to entry, right? And so, um, yeah, those are beehives. We've got a duck pond area over here, some turkeys in the back corner. This is our herb garden. This is lemon thyme. Have you ever smelled lemon thyme? No, but I'd love to. Okay, uh, do you remember Fruity Pebbles? Oh yeah. All right, you're gonna you're gonna love this. This is one of my favorite scents. It, it, it smells just like 
Fruity Pebbles. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? You ever just keep some in your beard? Oh, yeah, I do. I put it behind my ear, and when I'm having a stressful day, I'll just... No, actually, I make tea out of it. Uh, I'll grab a handful, cut it, and just brew it and steep it like tea. That's and, awesome. And uh, put a little honey, and it's awesome. So, so what do we do with the livestock? What do you guys do with the livestock? Yeah, that's a great question. So we get eggs. So we do a Robin Hood approach. So we will sell our eggs for $6 a dozen to anybody that uh, is not from Bonton, and $3 a dozen for anybody that lives in Bonton. Same with our market, and I'll explain this. This is Doris. Hi, guys. Hey, Miss Doris, how, how are you? How you guys doing? Very good, I'm Adam. Nice to meet you, Adam. Nice to meet you, Chris. Nice to meet you, Chris. Nice to meet you, Tri. You silly. Give me So the chickens will lay eggs. It's one of our uh, big incomes. The bees make honey, and then the goats uh, produce milk. So we get about two gallons a day. Uh, we have restaurants that buy the milk, and then we have neighborhood people that come by and they'll buy the milk. And so we've got a great relationship with Cafe Momentum and so, some other ones where they'll they'll buy whatever's left over that the community doesn't. This is our compost machine that's uh, not up yet. We get electricity once we finish our market. So we got a compost machine early, but it will crank out maybe three to four yards of compost a week. Right now we have a partnership with uh, a company called Turn, uh, which takes compost from the city and gives it to us and it gives us extra feed for our chickens and goats so we try to save you know we, we don't want anything to go to waste is, is our goal we've got about 40 or 50 fruit trees so we're passing some peach trees some pluots some um things like this so like like that's a peach tree they're not quite blooming yet but again we've got about 30 or 40 of those um we've got tomatoes galore collard greens pickle or cucumbers that will pickle cucumbers um squash, shishito peppers. Um, this is our, our rabbit hutches here. We haven't gotten any rabbits yet. They, alpaca and rabbits can, uh, their manure can go straight on the garden without having to compost it. So it's gonna sit up top here. Tell us about uh, the market. So when you guys are gonna sell this thing, these things and you say other people, outside people can come down and support you by purchasing eggs and purchasing honey. And how does that work? Oh man, uh, so I think the market will really be Bonton 2.0. And what I mean by that is, again, go back to the Robin Hood approach I was talking about. If you live in Bonton, you will get to eat breakfast and lunch for $5 a meal. If you live outside of Bonton, then we'll charge you market rate, okay? We'll have a place to harvest our fruits and vegetables and refrigerate them. We'll have a place that will give us about four to six new jobs. We'll have a place where we can have, um, at two o'clock we'll shut down the, the restaurant and it'll be more of a community center. And we'll have diabetes testing and training, heart disease training, we'll have, I'll, I'll leave the faith and finance classes, we'll have our Bible studies. Crud, we've talked about yoga on the farm, goat yoga or something, we don't know, but, but the point is that um, that space will give us a, a community place. There is not, there's not one restaurant in Bonton. There's not a McDonald's. You know, when we say liquor store, we're talking liquor store. We're not talking 7-Eleven. We're not talking racetrack. So there's no place to sit down and have a meal. And there hadn't been for 40, 50 years, to my knowledge. And this will be one of the first restaurants in, you know, four or five decades. Bonton Farms is um, really a farm in a food desert. But beyond that, the word farm means to grow and to cultivate. And so this is really just a vehicle for us to, to cultivate and to grow people. So uh, beyond growing crops and vegetables and having goats and chickens, uh, this is a vehicle for us to make disciples and to help people grow into the image of Christ. So that's what we're doing. That's great. So the history of Bonton Farms, uh, obviously the history of this part of the city goes back pretty far, but can we start with just the history of the farm? When did it start here? Who starts it? What is the impetus behind it? How do they start and how does that bring us to where we are now? What's different now than when you first started? Sure. Uh, I had a mentor at Prestonwood Baptist that started the ministry down here called His Bridge Builders about 20, 25 years ago. Fast forward, uh, Darren has an incredible story as well, uh, but he moved down here about six or seven years ago. Once Darren moved down here, he realized that his friends, our friends now, uh, were sick. And it wasn't like a cold and flu. It was like uh, diabetes, strokes, cancer, heart disease, all these things that you can't see on the outside. You can only see 
uh, well, once you get to know them, because you get to know, well, they don't show up for work or they're, you know, in the bed and uh, on dialysis and things like this. And so with an average household income of roughly, our guess is anywhere from ten dollars to $15,000, probably more like $12,000. Um, you know, the government, it wasn't going to come down at the time and do anything. Uh, you know, we had um, business. The, the economic situation was not in a place for, you know, business. And so he said, man, let's plant a garden. So we planted a garden next to Darren's. And I met him maybe the year or two after. It was just a little garden next to his house. And uh, from there, we got an aquaponics unit. You start growing six-foot-tall sunflower te- uh, seeds and sunflower flowers in the, in the hood. And people are like, what's going on? Habitat said, man, I've got two uh, lots on the corner of Bear Street, and uh, we'll give it to you if you'll grow on it. And they went to the city, and the city gave us two lots, and the church gave us a lot, and a private owner gave us a lot. And the next thing you know, we end up with 1.2 acres here in Bonton. A year later, we had a guy named Fred Treffinger who came down and saw some, it wasn't a podcast, but it was some video, uh, what we had done. And he said, man, if you could do that on one acre, I'll give you 20. We did that for a year, and then he bought another 20. And so we actually have three locations. One is Darren's house. This one is 1.2 acres, and then we have 40 acres just outside the city. So one of the things you mentioned, you said that um, Bonton exists in a part of the city that's a food desert. Can you unpack, if somebody's never heard that before, uh, what is a food desert, and how would we know if it's a food desert? Sure. The uh, USDA says that any community with over 500 people that doesn't have a grocery store within one mile is a food desert. Uh, doesn't sound like a big deal when you just hear that stat. But for us, for example, 63% of our people do not have transportation. Most all of my men, I can only think of one that has had a driver's license. So you're 35, 40, 45 years old, you've never had a driver's license. Our nearest grocery store, we've got about 4,500 people in Bonton. Our nearest grocery store is Fiesta at Fair Park, which is about 2.8 miles away or three miles. So in order to go grocery shopping, it's a three hour round trip tour from start to finish. You have to walk a half mile in between some bus stops. You gotta wait on the bus. You would have to have your kids you know, taken care of or take them with you. You can't get meat because it'll bleed out. You can't get ice cream because it'll melt. You can imagine doing this in a 100 degree heat. And then you could only carry however many groceries are on two arms. And so what happens is you don't do it. But you end up going to the local liquor stores. And so you have everybody going shopping and getting you know, outdated onions for higher priced and honey buns and sweet tea. And if you do that from the time you're, you know, two until you're 25, 30, you have, our community has the highest rate of cancer, stroke, diabetes, and heart disease in the city and the county. So the reason that people don't put grocery stores in food deserts and typically in Bonton is really an economic one. If I said, hey, I've got a great business plan and the area that I'm gonna put this multi-million dollar H-E-B or what at Kroger, it doesn't matter the name there, but grocery store here, uh, I'm, I'm gonna do this and it's a million dollar plan, but the only, the average household income is 12 grand a year. You're gonna, I got my MBA, I'm not that smart, but you're gonna fail, no, no investor. In fact, the city offered $3 million for any grocery store to be put in South Dallas area, and it was a pretty broad area. Gate, we're gonna give them three million plus just whatever, and nobody took them up on it because you have to remember when poverty exists, you have insurance rates are gonna be higher, income's gonna be lower, theft is gonna be through the roof. Again, poverty, give me not poverty so that I don't you know, steal and defame your name kind of deal. And we are survivors, right? We are men and women, we're, we're flesh, and so um, those things cause us to do things that we wouldn't naturally do, but you're gonna feed your kids. And so my point in saying that is, largely it's economic, but when you trace it back, you can see the racial divide and the prejudice and things like this. This is not a historically white, wealthy neighborhood that just happened to be in a floodplain and didn't have a grocery store. This this is a historically African-American neighborhood that was in a floodplain and didn't have a grocery store and still didn't have access for food. Do people feel a systemic disadvantagement uh, because they live where they do in Bonton or because they had the, uh, the background or lack of inherited wealth they did or opportunities are different for people here than they are in the other parts of the city? Sure, I mean, um, if, if you look at, if you look at Dallas uh, in general, or Texas, I should say, I think it's an 89% uh, graduation rate in Texas from high school. In Bonton, it's 53%. We have a lot of guys that 
get out of jail or prison and they don't have a driver's license, uh, we work through that process and it ends up, you know, taking so long because we have to get a lawyer to work through the thousands of dollars of tickets. But then when we get their tickets taken care of, then they have surcharges. Mm -hmm. So then we have to work through the surcharges. You know, uh, I've heard stories of people getting out of prison and uh, having warrants for their arrest for failure to appear because they were in jail and they couldn't get to uh, court, but they were in jail. Um, a lot of times we'll try to get people hired, but the just the simple practice like insurance uh, to hire people that have a felony or a background is really difficult. So I say that poverty is layered. There's not necessarily one thing that if I went in and I created jobs, let's say, or if I, you know, helped with education, that it's so layered. There are probably a dozen total. You know, we try to focus on five or six, but uh, things that keep people impoverished. Uh, and then I think, if I'm being real candid, I think the church uh, is not being the hands and feet of Jesus, uh, if I can be real candid and say that. Um, you know, Jesus has called us to go into all the world to make disciples, and we forget our own city. You know, statistically, and these are some old stats, but it's within the past probably eight years, five or eight years. We have the most um, evangelical wealth, the most churches, and the most um, seminaries per capita than any other city that I know of. And yet we have a, a poverty rate, we're right behind Memphis, Tennessee, and Detroit, Michigan. And I have to ask as believers and pastors and ministers, it's like, wait a minute, how can we have all of these things and yet the poverty is so tough and we're you know, leading? And, and I just have to think, man, I, I can't wait for the church to awaken. I think it takes us crossing, you know, um, social barriers, financial barriers, um, all these kinds of things, and realizing that, man, we are all human beings made in the image of God. So for me, I don't know about you, Adam, but for me, that was that it's kind of shocking to think that there is there is a farm in Dallas. Uh, first of all, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, but then uh, to think that the reason that that farm is there is because uh, there's no sort of reliable food source or yeah. there's no grocery store for a large population yeah. uh, in our city. I mean, that's not really something people know about. Um what did you make of it? Well, you know, what's fascinating about that is urban deserts are actually pretty common, not only in our own city, but across the nation. And some other, we could tell you so many stories. We could we could talk about this, Adam, all day, like most of our topics. One of the other really interesting stories that I could do just in, in brief, there's actually a college on the south side of Dallas that also exists in a food desert that shut down their football program to turn their football field into a farm to start growing local produce. That there are all sorts of creative ideas of how to overcome this uh, current injustice that is a result of longstanding systemic uh, issues of saying this this land is um, going to be apportioned for a certain group of people of a certain socioeconomic group uh, that is a certain minority, and now that's led to these issues where no grocery store feels like it's a viable place to run a business. Yeah, you know, as we uh, one thing you started talking about in there was this idea of institutional or systemic racism. And as we, we've we had many episodes on just this idea of racism and what it looks like and how Christians should engage. And it's a term, this, this term of systemic racism or systemic prejudice, it's a term that keeps coming up. And so I think it would really be important, important um, to to have a deeper conversation about what it is and maybe ask somebody um, for their insight. Yeah, I do think talking about institutional racism, the, which is kind of a, a collective failure of our, our nation or a group of people to address everyone fairly or to address everyone the same way. Some of that is legacy. Some of that is reality. And that's why I'm really glad we got to have a conversation with Dr. Charlie Dates that'll help kind of flesh that out a little bit. And he's coming from Chicago, so he'll talk about how that works itself out locally there. But I think it's just as helpful to think about the same realities here in Dallas and across our nation.
I am Charlie Edward Date, senior pastor at Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago and an affiliate professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Dr. Dates, first of all, thank you so much for being here with us, and I'd love to just start with the Scriptures. What does what does the Bible say about justice and righteousness? Why, why is justice and righteousness an important factor for Christian churches in America? I think the Bible teaches us that justice and righteousness are part of the very character of God. Yeah. Adam and Eve suffer the fatal blow of sin in the garden, and the idea of of justice and righteousness has to do with right. So they do wrong, and right causes a penalty to be exacted. Mm. Uh, as we move forward in the First Testament, you get to the children of Israel, and Moses receives the Decalogue, and this is kind of the Constitution, the um, guiding elements of what makes the people of God, and it's a, it's a list of rights and wrongs. Yeah. Uh, the whole Bible is bending an arc toward righteousness, that there is uh, a way that we are to be, not just what we are to do, but there's a way that we ought to be, and that is to be upright. And obviously the narrative of Scripture uh, is very clear. It, Paul just comes right out and says it in Romans that there are none righteous, no, not one. Mm-hmm. And so we need the one who makes us righteous. Fascinating to me is that, uh, particularly in the New Testament, the idea of righteousness, justice, justification, all function in the same family of words. And Mm -hmm. so it's hard to take any passage or period of the Scripture examining God's work in humanity and with humanity and not see Him bending us toward right. And then, of course, on the cross, where He accomplishes um, the final payment fully and freely for all humanity who would trust his son, we we see that God takes the issue of justice, justification, and righteousness very seriously. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think it's all there. I wouldn't um, try to get bogged down in one passage here or there, but I, I think the thread of the Scripture, if you pull justice and righteousness in Revelation, Genesis will crinkle. It's all woven neatly through the Scripture. So let's take it from there and go specific. I feel like if you ask somebody what racism is, they would they would tell you a probably a specific individual example of racism would be easy to come by. But can you help us understand the difference between that and what systemic racism and, or uh, systemic sin might be? What is a what is institutional racism as opposed to individual? Well, it certainly seems like a social construct, and it's one upon which our nation is built. Yeah. Racism laid like a sleeping coil underneath the table at the Constitutional Convention. We were, black people were mm. considered not fully human, three-fifths human. The, the slave trade, the North Atlantic slave trade, that diaspora that brought black and brown people from West Africa primarily to the states was was founded upon a system of booming the economy hmm. in uh, these yet-to-be United States and the original colony. And it, it really is, in one sense, it's, it's something that we've come up with uh, on the basis of skin color. And once something is created like that and then becomes socialized, which is what has happened, and it becomes normative and it affects economics and education and uh, housing and opportunity. Yeah. So the racism is not simply an individual preference. It is that or prejudice, but it's also a set of guidelines by which the, the nation governs itself. And from the very beginning, uh, with the founding fathers until yeah. this point, you can see that laws have been, uh, been bent against uh, black and brown people, mm. and they have been bent in favor of, of white people, and primarily, yeah, those who come from European nations. I mean, how, do you think about it? I mean, America, man, not us technically originated here, except for the people the founding fathers stole the land from. Hmm. So uh, all of us, in one sense, are descendants of immigrants, and, and yet one group of immigrants 
who led in the capture of this land uh, claim a superiority yeah. to other people. And so that bends its way to banks, it bends its way to laws, it bends its way to uh, schools and businesses, you name it. It's And until you get to the point where we are, where you're born and then are socialized into a system that in one sense, God doesn't recognize it. It's not real, but you're made to think it's real, and it governs how you how you behave. So I'll give you an example with me. I I gotta watch myself when I'm driving in some communities, daylight or at night, but especially at night. Um, that's something I've learned. That's behavior I've learned. When I'm in the northwest suburbs of Chicago or or up north, um, like where the Divinity School is, um, man, I gotta. I got to be super careful because I know that law enforcement in that area are suspicious of people like me driving the kind of car I drive. And so it's, it's an unfortunate thing. It, it diminishes both the person who is oppressed as well as the person who enacts the oppression. One of the things you talked about, and I, I love what you're, what you're mentioning right now, because I think it leads to something you mentioned in your MLK 50 talk. You talked about, uh, de jour segregation and, uh, being, uh, you know, it was the law and now it's de facto segregation. It's not that it's gone. It's just that it's, it's a fact. Can you make some clarifying statements around that, that idea that it, even though maybe there was a more explicit racial laws in the past, it doesn't mean there's less segregation in the present? Yeah. You know, so the, the facto, and I wish I had to speak in front of me, uh, <laughs> but the, <laughs> The de facto segregation is what most people will admit to, and that is that, yeah, we know they're racist people. They're individual persons who have individual prejudices and leanings that affect how they do business. Oftentimes, those people, well-intentioned, genuine, good people, do not admit to the jure segregation, which is a segregation by law, that Mm -hmm. in fact, like, for instance, in Chicago, where I am, uh, you could not buy property in the 1930s and 40s in certain neighborhoods simply because you were black. It was the government's way of keeping black people living in certain communities. So when that's the law, yeah, um, that there is no debate over that. We don't have to talk about how people feel. It's just the reality. And then when some of the laws were were being broke, uh, a term sociologists use for Chicago called blockbusting. When some white people would sell to black people, um, white plight ensued, and it kind of the the law didn't matter as much when those white homeowners didn't want to honor yeah. the law yeah. uh, so much as it mattered when black people went to try to get loans to purchase homes in certain neighborhoods. So that that's that's the difference, and this is what I'm saying. This is why it's so hard to overcome in one sense and to. See, for some people, it's because it's woven into the very way we do life in the United States. Absolutely. Yeah, Dr. Gates, um, that's what I so love about uh, this this sort of um, argument that's unfolding here is – it's it's so historical, meaning I think so often, and, and I could be wrong about this, but I think so often what happens is there's sort of this – I don't even uh, that we can be ahistorical about our lives and about where we come from. You know, we seem to be disassociated from uh, the realities of our past. And so uh, it becomes a lot harder to argue whether there's systemic racism or not today when you understand that our founding, right, like that when our country was founded, when our Constitution was written, uh, uh Many people, uh, but especially African-Americans, were not even seen as human beings, right? And so it becomes a lot harder to say, well, I mean, I don't know if there's systemic racism today when you understand that it's actually been woven into the very fabric of our history. Um, And then I think what happens is – and it's also what you just said. Like for a long time, there were laws on the books that helped keep – uh, you know, certain neighborhoods segregated. And, you know, because those things don't exist now, everybody thinks, well, the problem's fixed, right? Like the laws aren't there. We just, we just have to wait for it to sort of, you know, work itself out. But 
the laws sort of helped reinforce an attitude uh, and then shape, in some sense, the future, right? I mean, it's like you can't just walk away. Just because all of a sudden the law is not there anymore, it doesn't mean that everything just works its way out. It, and it, it in some sense, has an impact to today. Uh, and you and you see it like you're talking about. You see it all over the place. Um, and so I, I just love that there's there's something clarifying. Uh, we don't have to we don't have to try to hem and haw over you know what is this thing and is it really there when we just go back to history and we look at where we've come from. I would say I, I would say that it's not totally erased from our laws either. No, no, yes, uh, exactly. I, I wish I, I wish that it were, but I, I mean the classic example is in 1954. Uh, the Supreme Court rules in favor of Thurgood Marshall in the Brown versus Board of Education right. uh, case, and racial desegregation of schools start to get enforced and take place. It becomes this epic period of education for black people in the United States that runs up until like the late 70s. The federal government is so impressed with how um, school districts are progressing in some areas that they start to incentivize districts with more funding based upon how well they're integrating. So the public school system becomes a vibrant place for African-American children and non-African-American children to learn and to learn together. Uh, in the early 80s, the Reagan administration said that they erased some of those subsidies and uh, the money is not there to kind of uh, motivate these districts to continue that desegregation so that now in Chicago and in Detroit, I'm sure it's this way in other major cities, our schools are more segregated today than they were yes. or as they were in the 1940s and the 1950s. Yeah. And, and many people would hear me say that and say, oh, that can't be true. And, I, and I'll just invite you to come see for yourself. It is true. And, and the Supreme Court uh, heard a case from the city of Detroit. I, can't, I don't have the details in front of me, but they, will, they refuse to act. They will not act on it right now because the law technically says that segregation is illegal, but in practice, Segregation in public education, it's happening yes. at frightening levels today. Yeah. Yeah, I, but the same is true in our own city of Dallas. There are schools that uh, when desegregation was initiated and they had a strategy of busing to overcome segregation, that those who yeah. were those who were um, white did not show up to be bused to the other schools. They just pulled out of the school system and moved to the suburbs. And then those schools who they were supposed to be bused to have always remained uh, minority-majority uh-huh. schools. And then those that were majority white in the public school system merely they didn't become diverse they just uh, were uh, like uh, escaped from by the white populations they ran from them and they became uh, a minority majority school and uh, that's the same case here and there's a there's an interesting court history for that as well and i want to jump back to one of the things you mentioned a little while ago uh, you were referring to um redlining and, and these uh kind of uh, uh, institutions which would only allow certain people in certain neighborhood or give uh, loans to certain people in, in certain neighborhoods. And there were certainly local laws and state laws and national laws about neighborhoods being only for one race or only for another until the hair, the Fair uh, Housing Act. And some of those things obviously still have ramifications. And like you said, there's still laws on the book that enact these things. But one of the things that we're really interested in, and maybe this exists in Chicago as well, but we have urban food deserts here in Dallas that are a result yeah. of some oh, of yeah. these. And could you talk a little bit about what, uh, how an urban food desert or other things are the result of, of explicit racist practices for a long time? Now we have these implicit and ongoing examples like urban food deserts. Yeah, I think food deserts is a complicated problem with a simple solution in one sense. And we do have them to uh, get at your question. And and perhaps I can speak to some of the challenges around how they form. But basically, a food desert is uh, a neighborhood or community or a set of communities that do not have a viable grocery store. And by a viable grocery store, I mean a place where you could buy fresh water, vegetables, fruit, meat that's actually like not transferred from another store. Yeah. Uh, but there, and in some of these communities, believe it or not, people are grocery shopping at gas stations. So they're buying milk and eggs, that kind of thing from gas stations. And some of them do not have cars to kind of get out the way, to get out of their neighborhood, that is, to go shopping. The, the challenge, too, becomes when grocery stores do not want to open in those neighborhoods. We saw that in the third ward in Chicago uh, for a good while 
And the alderman would often say, you know, part of the challenge she had in attracting grocery stores to our community is that the crime rate was such that grocery stores felt that they lost money Hmm. moving into these neighborhoods. They would lose shopping carts. They had to pay for additional security. And and some of the stuff is not always true, but this is, this is what they would say. But what that does is it, it uh, generates and spreads disease because when you do not have access to quality food and you're eating processed food, packaged goods and the like that are high in sodium or cholesterol and the like, then obviously there are certain foodborne illnesses. Type 2 diabetes is one of them uh, that come along with that. And, and then for some of our uh, healthier grocery stores, if you would, in Chicago, we've got Whole Foods and Trader Joe's. I'm not sure the ones you got yeah, we have uh, down in Dallas, but they are priced out. They're yeah. priced out so that poor people cannot afford to purchase uh, those goods. Now, what's funny, was I said it's not funny, but what's interesting is in Chicago, we just got a Whole Foods in Inglewood. Inglewood is like the toughest, poorest neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. Hmm. South side and the west side are primarily where black people live. We just got one. It's a smaller version. And, and, and I'm, I'm applauding Whole Foods for coming to Inglewood. I noticed, however, that they were selling, and maybe they do this down there, they were selling flaming Hot Cheetos at yeah. this Whole Foods, which they never do at the one in the South Loop. Hmm. Um, so one says that's not the kind of stuff you want your kids eating no. or gravitating toward, and yet that's in the Whole Foods that's in the hood. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so there are all kind of complications, uh, health, public health issues and the like that come along with food deserts. And so... Some neighborhoods have tried to fight that with uh, urban gardens, if you will, yeah. um, which I think we need to support the black farmers. That's a whole other issue. They've tried to combat it in that way. But it, in the end, it is an economic issue on the basis of race. Keeps grocery stores from proliferating in predominantly black and brown neighborhoods. Yeah. Some, so you've mentioned now, uh, outside of food, you've talked about education, you've talked about housing, you've talked about policing. I've heard you speak before about incarceration and these things that all lead to different disparities of health and disparities in wealth and inherited wealth between people groups. What of these examples, and maybe you could share with us even some more, what are those examples of systemic racism that Christians should be aware of and addressing? All of them. All of them. I think that some of what Christians ought to pay attention to is what's happening in their neighborhood and around their villages and their cities. So to the extent, for instance, for those who are listening to this podcast, say in the Dallas Fort Worth area, there are some contextualized challenges that ought to get your attention. So I think on the broad scale to answer your question, mass incarceration is something every church ought to be concerned about right now. We've literally watched two, maybe three generations of black men go to jail in mass. And what that means for black women who are looking to marry black men, which is not like a bad idea. I'm not saying it's the only option, but it's not a bad idea. Mm-hmm. They are, oh my goodness, they are um, the pickings are slim. That's the cleanest way I could say it. And a lot of that is tied to how our government set up the penal system. We could go and look at the Reagan administration and, and how the fake war on drugs, actually with Richard Nixon, the fake war on drugs, took so many black men down. But it robbed whole communities of the biblical paradigm for leadership in family and in communities. Yeah. And it does so on the, the basis of race. So that's something we all should be concerned about. Another thing we should all be concerned about, which we've talked about before, is education. Education to me, and I'm not a politician. But in the United States, ought to be a basic right. There, there are Christians who disagree with me fundamentally on that. They don't feel like a quality education should be like a basic right for every American. I just don't see how in a nation as wealthy and as bright and scholarly and artsy as ours is that we deny that foundational footing of children based upon where they're born and where their parents live. And so... I know that you guys at the Village Church are, are studying this. I, I talked to uh, Pastor Sandler about this from time to time. You guys are taking some action there. But I think every every church ought to be concerned about that. And then the other thing is, as it relates to economics, I think we need to pay attention to children, especially. Mm. We And this is connected to education. We need to seriously focus on helping black and brown children, especially, 
develop as entrepreneurs, mm. as leaders in industry, so that they are not relying upon big companies or other wealthy places to generate income for their community. Um, the wealth disparity and the achievement gap are correlated. They're related to one another. Yeah. And, and so to the extent that people I, I challenge some of the white businessmen, Christian white businessmen in our city. You guys know how to make wealth. And what I've learned is not just a matter of numbers. It's a matter of relationships. You have those networks to know how to create wealth. You got to take that intentionally instead of getting all of that money for yourself. You got to take that and bring those opportunities to black and brown communities and start with churches yeah. to help them gain those opportunities. I mean, it's not like black people have not proven. Let's just say black people. It's not like black people are not proven that they are as good, if not better, in many areas of industry, arts, and sports than their predecessors. Uh, So when given the opportunity, it's not a question of whether or not they can achieve. Uh, The question is whether or not they will get the the opportunities at it. That that's such a um, you you're already answering my question, but I I want to just back up just a little bit because I think it will be helpful. I think so often um, what can happen when people hear about systemic racism, even if they agree, right? Even if they're like, okay, you've got me. It exists. There's there's laws on the books. There are just historic realities that that point to uh, uh, where we are today, and and we can we can see that. What happens, I think, sometimes is people go. But it's not individual. If it was individual, there was something I can do about it. If it's systemic, it can feel paralyzing because, you know, when you talk about systems or institutions, it can feel more abstract. You can feel like, well, I don't have a foot, you know, like I just live in the suburbs and I'm, you know, I don't know. I don't even know the first thing about how to change this besides like voting or something like that. But you mentioned something very specific there and uh, about helping give people opportunities, uh, being aware of our context. Um, but is there anything else you would say, you know, to the person out there who's going, Dr. Dates, I believe you. I just don't know what my first foot forward is here. Sure. I think the first foot forward is to start talking about it in your circles of relationship and influence. Yeah. There's nothing that makes people uncomfortable so quickly than a friend who has become enlightened. Enlightenment, it might be the bad word, but who, who is, oh, become who's been quickened, if you will. Um, and, and so in your small group, right, that you guys do that kind of stuff. Yeah, and yeah. in your, at, at your kids' soccer matches, uh, bring up some of these issues. And you do community dinners and just see how people respond. There's so many, by the way, resources, things to watch, books to read yeah. uh, that, that you can, and they are safe. I, I don't mean so some people get into these things. They're, oh, well, you know, that's Marxist. I'm not into that. anybody and Jesus, neither Jew nor Greek. Hey, get that out of here. Yeah. <laughs> um, this, this is just straight history and the Bible. Start there. Start by talking about it and then get educated. So uh, I did, uh, I read a few years ago this book, Home Property. Now, this will make you want to cry. You need to have your Bible and a, uh, and a strong drink. And by strong drink, I mean some ginger ale. They have a Bible and, and some ginger ale there to read uh, Home Properties by Beryl Satter. And then Richard Rothstein's book, um, The Color of Law, Yes, how the government uh, segregated the state. Yeah. Those are, those are easy resources to kind of get into, to get your bearings, to understand the historical argument as to why... Um, Things are the way that they are. So start it in conversation. Do the basic education. And then I would say start leaning on, don't despair. So this is a caveat over them all. Stay away from despair. In the end, God is going to use this church in amazing ways, and we will overcome. That That is absolutely the case. That's great. I love yeah. that. But, but lean in on maybe some of the leadership of your church and just ask what can you do in your neck of the woods to bring about change. Yeah, I'll tell you what you're talking about right now was eye-opening for me not long ago as I started to read some. And for me, it started with a couple of books. Like you're saying, it started with reading. Honestly, I think it was John Piper's Bloodlines started me on kind of exploring local history and then reading things like Color of Law or seeing the documentary 13th or reading New Jim Crow or just realizing how many of the authors I read or the music I was exposing myself to or movies were made by people that were very much like me and how my eyes were open to certain things once I started exposing myself to authors and thinkers that 
that were outside my normal stream. So I, I think that's a, a wise next step. But why then? Why are so many Christians, and maybe not then is the right way to say this, but why are so many Christians, especially white Christians, why do you think they're uncomfortable and uneasy admitting that things like systemic racism are a reality? Why is there, um, uh, does it feel, do you, do you get the sense they feel like they're being accused of something there that uh, they, they feel innocent of, so they don't want to address it or they don't think it's real? Why are they so uneasy around this topic? Man, I'd love to hear y'all answer that first. You guys are white Christians. Yeah. I, I'd, I'd be curious to hear what, did you ever feel uneasy uh, when these issues initially came to uh, confront you or into your knowing? How, how did you respond to it? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, thanks for turning the interview on us. <laughs> yeah. <Here> we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I've had a lot of conversations with people in the suburbs, and when I talk to them about things like some of the books that you've you've mentioned today and how the suburbs were uh, really bolstered by uh, the result of uh, desegregating schools and of redlining and of wanting uh, to have uh, their own uh, white neighborhoods separated from a, a desegregating urban society and how those things have happened. Uh, there's a sense in which I get people, particularly in the suburbs, feel like you're saying, because I live where I am, I'm a racist, or because I live where I am, I formed this, as opposed to understanding what I'm what I'm trying to say is uh, that there are systems that we need to both acknowledge, even if you didn't have a part in forming the laws, we acknowledge that we have the advantage in the midst of them. And in fact, when we did some research at the village, on a white advantage, almost 100% of the congregants we we uh, researched said that they believed that being white was an advantage in our city. And to me right there, you would go, okay, so then can't we admit that there is a system that has that in place? It's not just we come sure. up with this. It's not just that we're a majority culture, because even in, in the urban environment in which we did the research, we are not the majority culture in the, in the inner city. So uh, it, have I ever personally felt unease? Absolutely. There are times where I feel like I need to be sensitive. Mostly, though, I feel like out of acknowledgement that I do not see the world the same way that everybody else sees the world. So for me to form an opinion on a thing like race, I hold really lightly what I think other races have experienced or can experience or what their daily life is like, especially for the immigrant or the historically disadvantaged. And, and so I felt uneasy in the sense of saying, like, how can I address this? But I don't feel like it's the same level of maybe vitriol that we have heard from uh, not so much. I feel like we're a little spoiled at the village. A lot of our people here, if they if they didn't want to be a part of this conversation, they wouldn't be here. But we do hear it a ton outside our own church. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. For me, it was hard. Um, I used to. Uh, I was a, an attorney for a little while, and I was um, I was a public defender in uh, both Dallas and in Boston, and I just couldn't deny the reality. You know, I just couldn't uh, that there were in the criminal justice system there were systemic things going on. Now I understand, like I was on the defense side, I get it. Um, I, I you know I know there's probably a lot of people who as soon as they hear public defender, they're sort of their mind shut down and go, of course you would think that. But I just you know uh, especially in places like Boston where I was, it was and even in Dallas, I mean, it was predominantly white. And in the years that I did it, I probably only saw two or three white people actually uh, go before the court for felonies. Yeah. And I just couldn't understand wow. that. I also saw people being prosecuted for things. Um, and I still don't know what to make of all of it. But I also knew that all of my friends did it growing up, too. Hmm. And yet we yeah. never got in trouble. Like, I just couldn't understand it. It would be like, you know, there. I, I still remember um, – a 17-year-old African-American uh, boy, he was a boy. I mean, I don't, I don't know another way to put it. He just was a kid, yeah. you know? He's a kid. And, yeah. uh, you know, he was literally being prosecuted for getting in a fight at a party. And I thought, I mm. got in fights at parties all the time growing <laughs> up. And there was no, I mean, if the cops came, it was like, get out of here, and you broke it up, and everybody went home. Yeah. And, I mean, his experience was guns drawn and a broken jaw. You know wow. what I'm saying? And I'm like... And then we go to his school and his, and I'm talking to his teachers just to try to help him out. And it was just like, his teachers were like, he's great. He's a great kid. And we start driving and he's, he's just talking about how he wants to, man, he wants to, he, he wants to, maybe he wants to go to law school and, and, you know, what does that look like? Yeah. And, and then he just told me I'll never, and then he just looked at me and, and I was trying to encourage him and I don't know what I'm doing. And he just said, man, I'll never get out of this neighborhood. And mm. I just said, why do, you, why do you say that, man? Why do you say that? And he and he just said, because everybody knows who I am, and they already have their mind made up about me. 
And I just, mm. that has haunted me since I've had that looking at a 17 year old uh, who did the same things I did. And our experiences are so different. Uh, and it's just, it's heartbreaking. And so I, I think that's where it's been hard is I, what I want to be able to do is be winsome and to the people who sort of have vitriol on the other side of this, just um, try to try to also be a listener and not react too strongly because frankly, I'm just, um, yeah, my experience has just really shaped me very strongly, I guess. Uh, and so that's, that's sort of where I'm at. I don't know. I I don't know if that's a good answer. Yeah. Well, I think it's a good answer. I think you guys are, I don't want to call you anomalies, but you're certainly a minority in terms of thought Uh, to me. Let me say this in terms of what I fear or, or why I think, some white Christians respond the way they do. A few years ago, I read uh, Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy, and, and I would strongly recommend it. This black guy gets arrested at his church's fish fry, put on death row. I don't want to give you the whole story, but for something he never did. And it was obvious that he had not done it. Mm. And the and this has happened in repeated instances, especially in a place like the state of Alabama. Um the, the best conclusion thus far that I've been able to come to is that many white people are afraid of losing privilege. Mm. And if the tables are turned, if justice is actually served, if it requires 10 yards for all of us to get a, a first down, mm. then somebody's going to lose the advantage that they have. And and most white people in America, white Christians included, most white people in America have no idea what it's like to live life without privilege mm. and without advantage. And so the, to give that up, to, to start off normal, so to speak, like everybody else, is a frightening, is a frightening proposition to consider. Mm. Um, Dr. Dates, un- as, Go ahead. as yes. we conclude, could you just... Maybe I just feel like this is such a heavy conversation. Maybe could you just help us land the plane by encouraging us in the Lord just for a minute? I know you're you're such a gifted pastor, such a gifted yeah. preacher, so grounded in the gospel. Yeah. Uh, I would just, I'd, I'd love to conclude this discussion, not just with the, I think everything we've talked about today is so helpful, but I also know that you're a man who knows the Lord is in this and has got this, and this is why we're active in these spheres, that we need to have influence to change things. But how does the how does the gospel encourage us in this conversation? Well, in a number of ways. Very simply, I tell your pastor this often, the fact that somebody like me hadn't given up on white people um, Mm. is like proof that the gospel works even Mm. further. Um, And I think that we know the problem of evil is what it is. We, We live in a fallen, broken world, and some of these problems we will not fix. That does not mean we need to be lazy and ignore them. But we're going to live with a fair amount of complexity. And the beauty is, God has promised us His amazing grace. And so somehow or another, in spite of the conditions I was born in, God has graced me to not only overcome, but to excel. And and so when I look at my wife and my children, they, my children and my children's children, Lord willing, are going to go much farther than I did. Because the people, my mother and grandparents, people of faith who pushed me to do further. So I would say this, the gospel is the only message that can cure what it diagnoses. It points out the problems that we have, but it gives us the cure, and it keeps us from hopelessness. So we believe. We Mm. have faith. We trust that God is going to do something amazing. And and if I can say that in my position, uh, one that has been of disadvantage at times, having been brought by the power of the Holy Spirit where I am, then I think those in a better position who started off on better footing uh, can stay away from despair too. All right, I'm so grateful for men like Dr. Charlie Dates and their insight into this. I know that uh, for some people, this is a very difficult conversation. For some 
for a lot of us, it's hard to know what to think. Hearing uh, somebody's opinions, maybe hearing Adam and I's opinions or hearing Dr. Dates' opinion has stirred something in you or frustrated you or encouraged you. Uh, either way, uh, let me ask you a question. If somebody does, if somebody's heard this podcast, Adam, and they come up to you this weekend at church or just in general, they want to talk to you about this topic. They come up to you after worship and they say, like many people do, hey, can you help me think through this or what do I do with this? How do I ad- how do I address uh, prejudice and bias in my own heart? How would you pastor that person? I mean, look, I think there's a lot of questions that could come from this podcast, but the first one that you're specifically talking to, it really is it has to be the beginning of a conversation, right? Yeah. And so unless somebody's coming up with something really specific that they are sure that there is, you know, uh, an overt racism in their heart, uh, the first thing I'm not going to do is, is you know, um, uh, you know, yell at them to repent or something. You know what I mean? I think it's the beginning of a conversation to say, well, tell me what that looks like and how was that formed in you and how have you seen that played out in your life? That's how it would be. I think for other people... Um, uh, this conversation is offensive and it makes them mad. And what I want to say is, if that's you, uh, I what I don't want is to like ostracize th- that person. What I don't want is for for me to sort of sit back and say, look, like I understand everything and you don't understand anything. And so, I, I think what you know, one of the things Doctor Date said in there that was so important was this is this is one of the best things we can do is have conversations with each other. And, and so that's what I would do. If somebody was really upset by anything that they heard, I would really just want to listen, honestly. I'd want to listen and uh, encourage where I could and and push back in healthy ways, right? We could push back against each other and yeah. hope that the conversation would move uh, to a, a place of health because the reality is that we're all – um, uh, you know, for those of us who are in Jesus, we're brothers and sisters. We're family, right? Uh, and family, if, if the, I say this often on the show, but if we can't have these conversations in church, I really don't think we're going to be able to have them anywhere else. That's I really great. don't. I just, I just don't think it's going to happen. So yeah, but Adam, you know, um, we talked a little bit, uh, to Dr. Dates about this, but, um, as you think through it, uh, what, what do we do? Honestly, like what, what are some ideas that, 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 how, how can we approach this as a church? I think that's a great question, Adam, and I do think it's a good concluding one, and I think it's a complicated one as well. What do we do? I think similar to the issue of racism, it, racism has both institutional and individual manifestations. And so if we're going to have a, a good response to this, we have to both have institutional and individual responses. I think there are things that churches institutionally should do to listen better to those people who don't uh, think the same way maybe leadership does or the same way uh, the majority race does in their culture, particularly if it's a homogenous church. They have to be creative at finding ways to make sure that they're not only thinking in one direction, one way with one culture, because that's not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is not to reach one nation or to be uh, a uh, uni-ethnic church, but to be multi-ethnic. So uh, just talking about individual and, and institutional together. I think there are a couple categories we can give. One is uh, repentance. I think there's a way to look into our own hearts and try to identify introspectively, is there bias in my own heart that should be addressed? Do I make assumptions about certain people? And then uh, institutionally, there's, there's biblical precedents for uh, confessing to God that there have been institutional sins in our nation, in our church, that in the name of Christianity, things have been done and say, Lord, please forgive us. And there are institutional ways for us to repent. And then individual and institutionally, there's ways to learn. Uh, We talked about with Dr. Dates that there's things we could be reading and exposing ourselves to that would open us up to different viewpoints. I'm not saying that we need to adapt every viewpoint, but we can. everybody you read is not going to agree exactly with you. But reading from uh, diverse authors, listening to diverse artists, those things really do help you form a more uh, diverse awareness. And then taking it from that, that's just more kind of ethereal to the ground, both institutionally and individually, we can love better. We can love our neighbor better. Uh, a lot of us think because if we have a friend who is a person of color that we are not part of the problem, but oftentimes uh, this this person of color is the one who has uh, kind of uh, foregone or laid down preferences in order to maintain that friendship and not those who are in the majority culture. So I think all of us can look around our dinner table and say, if we want to have a diverse church and a diverse sphere of influence, then let's have a diverse home and see what uh, dinner around the table looks like. Are we inviting people in our home, not people that go to our church? people outside our church who we'd like to know 
who don't think like us. I, I think even of um, really easily saying, where do you work? Where you work? Are there anybody who doesn't look or think like you? Invite them over for dinner. Mm. That's a great place to start. And then really quickly, just a couple more. We can be discipling better. We can look around and say, who, who, would, who would gain insight from the wisdom that the Lord has afforded me so far in my life? Mm. And we could disciple both people who look like us and don't in ways that I think are really helpful. And we talked about that some at Bonton. And then obviously in our home life, I think the way that we invest in our kids and teach our kids about how to uh, understand the differences in people and the differences in cultures and expose them to them is an important aspect of how we address it as a culture. Most people's uh, opinions of race are formed in the home. So those of you who are parents or those of you who do babysit or teach or have influence in children's lives, young life, student ministry, whatever it is, you have an opportunity to help them form a worldview that loves people regardless of what they're like. Mm. So I know that's a ton. There's a ton more we could talk about. There's so many ways that we can get involved, which is why this is a valuable conversation to keep having. Adam, thanks for being here for it. If there's anything you heard on the show that you'd like to know more about, you can find details on our website. Today's episode was produced by David Roark and edited and mixed by Chris Starrett. In our next episode, we're going to talk about a new documentary talking about Mr. Rogers and his influence in our culture. We'll see you next time. God bless and thanks for listening.